good to see everyone out this morning. As always, it's good to be able to worship God with you, to study His Word as we did in the Bible classes, and to study it just a little bit more as we try to apply it to our lives and, and see what God would have us to learn throughout His Word. If you want to go ahead and turn to an Old Testament book of Nahum, we're going to be looking at a verse here in just a moment at the very beginning of the book. <clears throat> And I'll give you a minute there because generally it's around this part of our Bibles that kind of stick together a little bit more because it's, it's you with the prophets, it tends to be that because of the language and because of the really just a lot of the, whether it be apocalyptic language, prophetic language, it, it, it's sometimes a bit more complicated to kind of delve through. But I will say, I think this book in particular is interesting uh, because it kind of gives us a good description of at least one characteristic of God. And before we get to that characteristic in particular, I would just ask, if someone were to ask you, how would you define God, where would you begin? Not, not just what would you say, because there's a whole lot of things that we could say, I understand that, but where would you begin? I think many people would begin with forgiveness. I think that's one of the top answers that you would get if you asked that question, how would you define God? I think that many people would probably talk about love because, as John says, God is love. And that would certainly be a good place to start. That, that's a good answer because it is something that we have to talk about when we're trying to describe who God is and what kind of, of being He is and what His characteristics are. You could talk about grace in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And you could talk about all kinds of beautiful things about Him. But I want to read in verse, uh, beginning in verse one in the book of Nahum, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, as we think about what Nahum begins, where he begins, would you begin that way? I really think that more and more today, not only would, would many of us kind of shy away from beginning here as we describe who God is, m many Christians, I think, would almost just completely try to stay away from this fact entirely. And I don't think that's a good thing because this is where, I mean, this is where one of the prophets of the Lord begins. He begins with vengeance. He begins with judgment and justice. And I don't think that that is that that has to be a necessarily negative thing. It's certainly negative when it comes to a certain group of people. But thinking about God's judgment, it should actually be something that encourages us. At least if you're in a right relationship with Him. And that's one of the things I want to talk about as we just kind of look at this, this, <clears throat> this characteristic of God, that He is an avenging Lord. What, what I want to come to is that when we defend God, we can't pick and choose what parts we want to defend. We have to defend all of Him. Are we defending God's just vengeance as much as we are His love and His grace and His forgiveness? And one of the things we're going to look at is I, if we are not doing this, if we're not prepared to do this, I think this is where a lot of the conversations go south and we're having studies with people because we're not prepared to answer these kinds of questions when it comes to His judgment and His justice. 
is vengeance. And so I want to look at this as, as we already read in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2. I want to first ask the question as we think about the wrath of God. Are we preaching about God's wrath? Are we preaching about God's vengeance? Because I do think that this is a major part of the Bible. And I want to make that case especially with this first point. Because this is indeed a part of God's character. Now what I don't mean by that is that he's just some malicious evil being. But this is a part of God's character, that he is a just avenger, avenger for the innocent. In, in, in uh, the footnote in the New American Standard here in my Bible, it, when it talks about how he is uh, not only the Lord is avenging and wrathful, the footnote says that he is a possessor or the Lord of wrath. And again, it's, it's isn't saying that God is some tyrant that is, just, that is just always angry and always wanting to hurt people. That's not what this is saying. But what it is saying, or what it's teaching us, is that he cares about justice. And that he cares about righting the evils, righting the wrongs. And that he absolutely cares about when people do evil and sin against him and against his creation, against his people. Now, do we preach this? Do we preach the exact same thing that Nahum does, that God does when he speaks about himself? Because we could go to several different places. Just, uh, just in the book of Nahum, in verse 1 of, of Nahum chapter, or verse 8 of Nahum chapter 1, it says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Skipping over to chapter 2 and verse 13. Nahum chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up their chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. And going even further into chapter 3, in verse 5, it says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. Now, just with those few verses we've read just throughout this, this tiny book uh, of Nahum, this prophecy of Nahum, does God try to, you know, try to throw, maybe, maybe he tries to distract from saying, well, really, it's going to be others that are bringing this judgment against you. There's going to be another nation that rises up against you. Uh, it, it, so it's, it's he's, he's not really, you know, owning it. He's not really taking ownership of this judgment that he indeed is ordaining over this group of people, over, the, over Nineveh and Assyria. Now, in fact, rather than just trying to distract people from it, he says, I am the one. And I think that this is encouraging for many reasons. Just, and we're going to talk about the encouragement, especially at the end. But I think this is encouraging because what we have is, is a group of people that, remember, Nahum is not preaching the message is not directly to the Israelites, although I think there's a lot that Israel is supposed to learn. God's people are supposed to take this and learn something from it. But this prophecy is given against a pagan nation. In fact, there's another prophet that comes to this same city in Nineveh. Jonah, you recall, about 150 years. We don't know exactly how long, but it was around 150 years since Jonah has given this message. And in fact, back then they repented and they did what was right. And, and, and for a while it seems that it worked. But now we're getting right back to the same old sinful ways. And we're getting right back to the same brutality that you find with this, this specific nation. And God is saying, you forgot me, but I'm going to remind you that I am the avenger. And I will avenge not just, not, just the, not just anybody, but specifically, I will avenge my people, those that you have hurt, those that you have brought injustice and evil against. Now, all throughout the Bible, I think that you have this similar warning. 
when you get to the New Testament, does the Bible warn of the terror of this world or the terror of the devil? Now, certainly it warns us against the schemes of the devil. And it shows us that, the, you know, like in 1 Peter, that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we have to be wary of his schemes and we have to be, understand that he's trying to get us to fall uh, down as we try to walk after the footprints of Jesus. But the Bible never really warns that you need to be terrified of the world, you need to be terrified of the devil because really they can do some damage. In fact, what you have is God bringing it back to him and saying, don't fear those who can just merely kill the body. Go over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 in verse 4. Luke chapter 12 and verse 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So often, much of the religious world likes to, likes to try to overlook this part of God. Fear should not be a part of it. And there's a certain kind of fear that absolutely Christians should not have. But we are meant to continually fear God. And we need, to, we need to maintain that fear because I think what happens is when that fear is, is either not talked about or forgotten or neglected in some kind of way, that's when we start to veer off the path. That's when we start to begin looking more like the rest of the world, the sons of disobedience, and, and, and falling for the schemes of the devil. It's God's wrath that the Bible warns of. And again, that's not a bad thing. God wants people not only to acknowledge this, but he wants people to dwell on his wrath towards sin, towards sinners. Because as Jesus makes clear in Luke chapter 12, this is a method that God uses to bring people to him. This is a method that God uses to keep people with him. And again, we can talk about love and grace and forgiveness, and we do that a lot, but I think far, what we often do and where we really fail is in this aspect of God's character. Do we properly fear him? Are we preaching uh, this, this uh, about God's vengeance in the way that he does. But not only that, if we are preaching about God's vengeance the way that he does, what that means is we're not going to be trying to somehow excuse it. And there's a lot of ways that we do this again. It, it, God's wrath never needs a defense. It never needs to be excused. It never needs to be reasoned away. Uh, and, and a lot of times what happens, we come to certain judgments throughout the Bible, and when we're studying with someone, we think, how are we going to get past this? I think it's a wrong mindset. You go over to chapter 3 of Nahum in verse 7. Look at how terrible these people were. In verse 7 it says, And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where, uh, where, will, where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia has her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put in Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. This is a, a really terrible depiction of violence that, that, that really God is just kind of recounting. And this is just a small taste it's just a fraction of the kind of brutality that Nineveh, that, that this nation would bring against the people that they dominated. In, in fact, and I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be 
like grotesque here, but I do just want to give you a snippet of the kinds of things that they would do, just so that way we're clear. When people come to the Bible, especially skeptics, and they try to say, well, how could God do this to a group of people? You want to know how God could do this to a group like Nineveh, which was the capital of this nation? You want to know why God would do this? Nineveh would, would literally skin people alive and use that for the walls of their cities. They'd sew it together and use it for the walls of their cities to, just to, not even to, as like a deterrent, but, mo, but mainly as a boast. They would cut off body parts of the noblemen and leave them to walk in deformed and really disturbing ways. And they would, they would not, again, they wouldn't just do this as a deterrent. They would brag about these things. This isn't just other nations kind of recounting these kind of disturbing images and they're saying, they were, they were terrible and, and disturbing, awful people. The kings would even brag about this. Look at what we did because, because they've dominated. And so this is the kind of group that we're talking about. This is the kind of evil, this is the kind of sin that God says he is going to avenge. And I'm, I'm kind of stepping on my own toes here, but aren't you so glad when you hear just a tiny fraction of the kind of brutality that man can bring through, through, through you know, leaning on his own wisdom? Aren't you so happy that we have a God who says, I am going to avenge that. That will not go unchecked. We, we should be. We better be. And again, we'll talk more about that as we go on. But too often we come to stories of God's judgments, like Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu, the, the, these men who are supposed to serve as priests for God. And, and I've heard Christians read that story and think, man, God acted really quickly. Uzzah, we just talked about that, didn't we, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, where Uzzah, he goes and he touches the Ark of the Covenant. And when we read those stories, sometimes Christians act like, well, we've got to find a way to defend God here because if people hear this, they're going to think, wow, what kind of God do, do we serve? No, I want people to come to these stories because I do exactly want people to know what kind of God we serve, what God says about himself. And what we find is even in those stories of judgment, you very quickly see the grace and mercy that was shown in those stories. But, but we think when we come to that, that we have to excuse God's behavior. We have to be careful and, and tiptoe around that kind of story. Maybe we can just get past it without talking about it that much. But we're overlooking the fact that God has brought an end to wickedness. That's what God has brought judgment against. God is not someone who, who just comes in and, and immediately tries to, to, to hurt people for no reason. This is one of the ways I think skeptics win a lot of arguments today. Because when, when they talk about you know, annihilating the Canaanites, when the Israelites took the promised land, when they talk about um, destroying Amalek and all of his people, when they talk about all of these nations that God said, you destroy they try to bring this up as some moral argument to say, well, can you believe that God would be so, so terrible? Just do a little bit of research and you see how awful these people were. You see how terrible these nations were. It, it, again, I'm not, I don't want to go back to what we just read about the, the, the Ninevites here, but that's what a lot of uh, nations that aren't guided, guided by God do. That, that's how defiled they become. That's the thinking and reasoning that they end up with when they're leaning on their own wisdom and not leaning after God's wisdom and leaning on his word. So skeptics often win with this argument because we, we start in a losing position because ultimately what this reveals is we think God was wrong if we have to tiptoe around this. So are we preaching this boldly? Are we preaching this unapologetically? I'll tell you one instance where I think this happens more often than not. One of the main arguments when we're having a study with someone 
an evangelistic study and we get to maybe a hard part like marriage, divorce, or remarriage. The way that we try to excuse God and, and not preach it boldly, not preach it unapologetically, is when we do apologize for it. We're apologizing ultimately for what? For truth. I'm sorry that God says this. There was even a preacher that I was talking to not long ago who said that he was going through uh, some of, I can't remember which gospel it was, but he was getting to the point, I think it was Matthew 19, where, where Jesus gives that teaching about the only exception for divorce and how God hates divorce. And as he was speaking with these individuals, he said, well, listen, I'm sorry that it says this, but as we were in the middle of that study, me and him, he said, that is, that is one of the most embarrassing moments of my life and one of probably top five things that I wish I could ever take back out of everything I've ever said. Because what I did there was try to apologize for God where he needed no apology. This is the truth. How could I apologize for truth? Do we do that sometimes? Instead of apologizing for, are we willing to just advocate for what Jesus says, promote what Jesus says and say, God hates divorce. This is not something that he enjoys. And this is something that he said much about. And being unapologetic for the truth, not saying that we're not compassionate for bad situations people get themselves into. But but just being bold in the truth. We have, to, we have to be willing to preach about even these hard parts, maybe, maybe seemingly hard parts of God, because ultimately he's doing something good. He is getting rid of the evil. He's getting rid of the sin in people's lives, and even in, as we see in Nahum in a very direct way. But finally with this point, are we preaching about God's vengeance like we believe it. And this kind of goes together with what we were just talking about. But back in chapter 1 of Nahum, in verse 14, what we find is that a lack of preaching in this area in particular ultimately reinforces the false notion that God won't do what he says. In verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. God is very clear and direct here. I just want to take a moment, as we see how, how clear God was there, I want to take a moment and maybe bring some arguments that people make today into uh, this, this group of people who might be receiving this message that, that Nahum and Jonah brought not too long ago. Now, if you heard the same kind of arguments you hear today about God's judgment, you might hear the Ninevites say something like, well, surely God won't judge. He's not a judging God, right? Or surely God won't condemn me for, for this. Or surely God won't send me to hell for that. Surely God won't send me to hell because I just didn't do exactly as he said in every single area. Would that have worked for these group of people? Now, it's easy to say, absolutely not. They're terrible. They've done awful, wicked things. I think when we, when we reason this away, what we're forgetting is that we have done some pretty wicked, awful things too. We have sinned, which has brought death to who? The very Son of God. And, and I think when we don't focus on this, when we don't consider this enough, and especially when there's a lack of teaching on this every so often in the pulpit, in our Bible classes, and outwardly in our homes, when we don't preach this over and over, we are going to get into that same mindset. Well, surely God won't judge me for this small thing. Just look at history over in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at what Peter says here in 2 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 4. Just look at history from the beginning 
of the world. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He gives a few different uh, accounts of those who ultimately fall to God's judgment. From angels in verse 4 to the ancient world of Noah to Sodom and Gomorrah. And how many times do we have to read those stories to think, well, surely God won't do this. Didn't Abraham do that with Sodom and Gomorrah? Surely you wouldn't do this. There's just, you know, this many people, this many people, this many. And it just whittles down until there's no one left. All, All but one. And when we forget that God means what he says, that I will bring judgment on, on this, that I will bring judgment on sin. We are setting ourselves up for failure because we're, we're, we're only reinforcing the false notion that he will not bring the judgment, that he will not avenge the wrongdoings that not only others have done, but we have done ourselves. And so we must be careful that we are preaching about God's judgment and God's vengeance in the way that he does. But moving on from that, are we learning also from God's long-suffering. Now, this does really go together because as you continue on in uh, Nahum chapter 1, right after he makes this proclamation that God is an avenging God, he is the Lord, uh, 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 that he is avenging, that he is wrathful, possessor of wrath. In verse 3, right after that, it says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is, is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Now, there's a couple things that we could say here. I do like the fact that you get to verse 3, and he begins with the fact that God is slow to anger, that he's patient, that he's long-suffering. But even in the midst of that, he comes right back to, but the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And I think that this is making a very specific point here, because God, I think, is really the only one that has ever perfectly given us an example of how to balance these two things of being slow to anger, of being long-suffering, but also being the Lord of wrath. And these two things do not contradict each other. This is one of the ways I think we have misunderstood the teachings of the Scriptures from time to time. Can we talk about God's patience without overriding His wrath, especially when it comes to our evangelistic studies? Are we able to talk about God's wrath without overriding the fact that He is slow to anger, that He is patient? Because what happens is we kind of swing from one side of the pendulum to another. It's either he's completely wrathful or he's completely long-suffering. He'll never do anything. And we have to be careful about that kind of teaching because certainly much of the religious world has that kind of teaching. But these two traits not only here are coupled together, but throughout several portions of Scripture. Over in Exodus chapter 34, and you recall what this is on the heels of. Exodus chapter 34, two chapters prior, what had Israel done? They had sinned against God by crafting a golden image, falling down before it, and to just top it all off, they attributed the victories that God had given them to this craven image. 
And so this is on the heels of that. And, and you see this, this beautiful story from chapter 32 all the way to chapter 34 where Moses intercedes for the people. God, for, he, he tells them initially that he's not going to go with them anymore, that he's going to send the cloud and, and the pillar of fire before them to lead them. But he can't be in their midst, otherwise he'll destroy them. But Moses intercedes. He says, please be with us. Stay with us. Because without you, we have nothing. And he's absolutely right. God did not have to appease that. God did not have to say, you know what? I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll look over this. And I will, I will keep on dwelling with you. I will dwell with my people. Even though you've hurt me so bad. He could have said, you don't deserve it. Because they didn't. But in chapter 34, beginning in verse 6, after he has told Moses that he will continue to walk with them, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And we don't have enough time to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, but in verses 9 through 11, it, it really kind of says something very similar to that. And, and this notion that God is both patient, that he is both long-suffering and an avenger, that he will, that vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. These things should not contradict in our minds. And if we are speaking in such a way, whether it be in, in a Bible class, whether it be in our evangelistic studies, what we're doing is confusing others, and we ourselves are confused about what the Scriptures teach. Because frankly, when you look at the long-suffering of God, this helps us understand God's wrath even further. In, in one way, this teaches us more about God's vengeance. Because it shows us that God does not just you know, flippantly make a decision. God never rashly reacts. Instead, he is just that he's slow to anger. He's slow to that point where wrath is finally the, the only answer that, that, that is left for a people. And this is a far cry from us. I asked, are we learning from God's patience? Are we learning from God's long suffering? How do we look when we compare ourselves to God in just the everyday, when we are remotely slighted. Not when we've been actually completely betrayed by our most beloved, but when we've just been remotely slighted. You know what tends to happen? You know what I tend to say? I'll show you what's what. Is, is that slow to anger? <laughs> or someone starts to uh, yell at you. This happens a lot in, in, in marriage, doesn't it? You, maybe one person starts yelling and, you know, because that person starts yelling, that just means I get to start screaming. And I get to start insulting. I get to start saying, okay, because you started it. Now, that's not slow to anger. In fact, what do we find in James chapter 1? That we are to be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to hear. God is the perfect depiction of that verse. So should we not learn something from God here? Should we not learn this kind of patience? And again, thinking about how long ago it was when Jonah had preached to the people of Nineveh and said that you need to repent, that judgment is coming. God wasn't rashly reacting there. They had already done some terrible things. They had already committed atrocities. But even at that point, God says, I'm going to give you more time. I'm going to give you another chance. And now that all this time has passed and they go right back to their evil ways, their wicked ways, he says, you have, you have exhausted that patience. There is a time when patience and long-suffering runs out. But it's not, it's not the way we tend, you know, because I'm exhausted after, after just one bad day. <laughs> God let this go for a while. 
And I know that there's, there's a sense in which we have to understand God knows best. He knows better than we do. We can't read into the hearts of man. I completely understand that. But there is a strong, strong lesson to learn here in just God's patience alone that we might could be just a little bit more long-suffering. And what that means is just suffer. we can suffer a little bit longer. But when you think about Second Peter uh, what, that we just read in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, you, those two stories that he brings up there, first talks about the angels, but then he talks about the flood. Think about this for a moment. How long had God waited to bring judgment upon the whole world? The whole world. This is a, gr- this is a story of, gr- on a grand scale, a great judgment. But God did not immediately get there. In fact, he waited, he waited, he waited until there was one righteous family left. Sodom and Gomorrah, is it not the same story? He waited and he waited and he waited until there was one righteous family left with Lot and his family. And, and I think that's one of the main things that we're supposed to learn in, in that you know, d- discourse between Abraham and God. That God does not just flippantly make these decisions. And he's not just going to, it, he's never been one to not give a chance to, to a people. But rather, when judgment comes, it is deserved. And that's the last point of, of this question. Are we learning from his long suffering? That, that his wrath is always deserved. In uh, Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to turn there. When we focus on God's patience and His long-suffering, I think this just emphasizes, as we were just talking about, it emphasizes that God isn't flippant with His judgments, but it also emphasizes that when it comes, that was the only answer that was left. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is, I, I, you know, I, maybe this is a bit of a jump, but I just want to read some of the sins that Paul talks about here. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Go over to 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there, there are other places that we could go where God inspires writers to give, you know, kind of lists of sins that, that are going to receive the wrath, that are going to turn people away uh, or keep people out of God's kingdom. But the reason I wanted to come here is because, first of all, we need to agree with and defend what God says deserves judgment. I, I Really, this, this is just one of the main points that I want to make here throughout this entire lesson. Because when we read these kinds of lists, sometimes I'm afraid that Christians look at what God says His wrath is coming for and think, this is a bit much. This is kind of a long list. And you know, you go to Romans chapter 1 and you're going to see another long list. You go to Colossians chapter 3, you're going to see another long list of all the things God says wrath is coming for. And, and again, people, when they study the Bible for the first time, they look at these things and say, is this book just a bunch of do-nots? It's just a list of thou shalt nots. And it's just so restrictive. We need to be able to look at these restrictions, yes, that God has made. But not 
as we were talking about a moment ago, not just try to make excuses for them, but defend them for what they are. Remember that these are things that hurt not only God, not only His creation, but it hurts me. And, and what God says is when He is going to bring wrath on those things, <clears throat> when He is going to bring wrath on sin ultimately, what that does is it, it teaches us to get away from those things that are hurting us. And it teaches us to get away from the wrath that is coming on those things. This attitude really, I think, is a worldly view of God's vengeance that has crept into us. That has crept in into our, our, our mindsets when we look at the vengeance of God. So when it comes to our evangelism, when, when we get to these lists, are we going to say, ah, that is a big list. Maybe, maybe we should just kind of focus on some other things, focus on more positive things. Or are we going to, like we were talking about with that marriage, divorce, remarriage question, are we going to unapologetically and boldly preach about what the vengeance of God is coming on? Because it's only that that's going to save now, with all this being said, I want to end with a kind of an, an interesting turn as we think about God's vengeance and his judgment. But are we celebrating in this fact? Are we celebrating in the fact that God is an avenging God? In Nahum, in verse uh, 15 of chapter 1, look at what he says. As he's speaking such serious and, and, and strong uh, judgments that are going to come on this people, he says, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. What is he saying there? But you can celebrate. You can have joy. Why? Because God's judgment is coming. God's wrath is about to fall. This is, I think, uh, or can be a stumbling block from time to time. We read what's called the imprecatory psalms. It's kind of like the psalms of David where he says, God, destroy them. Utterly annihilate them. And I'll tell you what, I mean, over the years, I've read those psalms and I've thought, how in the world did they sing this? You know, how did they sing this as a hymn in their worship service? Because it was sung. And I, would, and I wonder how it would go over if we sung those psalms in a worship service. To, to sing those words and really mean them. But I'll tell you what, I think, again, for one thing, we've forgotten what God is coming to bring his wrath on. Remember the brutality that we talked about of the Ninevites. Is it not good news that this kind of evil is being destroyed? Is it not a comforting thing when someone's reign of terror is ended? In verse 13 of chapter 1 it says, So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. That's something that he says, behold, this is good news. I don't think that we should grimace at this. Because when, when we hear of, of, you know, you could look at the news for all around the world, all kinds of terrible things happen. When you see, one thing that I think of immediately, I kind of hesitated to bring this up, but I remember when Osama bin Laden was killed. And, and he was killed by U.S. forces. And I remember that day being kind of confused because... Here is a man who deserved justice. He deserved to be put to death for the things that he did. But then I looked and saw, you know, the, the news outlets, they were just showing streets of people just sh celebrating and shouting in the streets. And I was kind of put back because I was like, I mean, a man did die, so how, how am I supposed to balance this? I mean, as a Christian, how am I supposed to balance this? But I would just say I think there's an appropriate joy that comes with God's justice being done. 
It doesn't mean that we are just going to, to have a morbid fascination with someone's pain and end, but we do have a joy and a celebration and, and a jubilant kind of emotion when we know that God's justice is being done. In Nahum chapter 3 in verse 19, at the very end of, of this prophecy here in verse 19, it says, There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Again, he's speaking about the demise and the destruction of this certain people that has caused so much terror among not just not just God's people, but all throughout the world. And doesn't that just make sense? Of course, that there's going to be applause. Of course, there's going to be joy and celebration when someone who is truly uh, prone and given themselves to evil and wickedness and the schemes of the devil is being put down. In Proverbs 21, very quickly, Proverbs chapter 21 in verse 5. Proverbs 21 in verse 5. It says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. I think I have the wrong, the wrong verse here. Oh, in verse 15, excuse me. The exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. There is terror when it comes to God's wrath, but it shouldn't be for God's people. When it comes to God's justice and his vengeance, we can be encouraged by this and we can be uh, uplifted because we see from time to time but what we know is coming through the promise is that there will be a day when all wrongdoings all the suffering will be avenged and it will be avenged ultimately through the cross of Christ but finally on the other side of that this does put things into perspective for us because as Nahum begins in verse 7 of chapter 1 the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue who? His enemies into darkness. And it doesn't matter what they devise, as it says in verse 9, they cannot escape the wrath of God. So the reason this puts things into perspective, the reason I think this refocuses us is because it makes us ask the question, am I a part of the nation's Am I a part of the sons of disobedience that the wrath of God is being stored up for? Or am I a part of that group of people whose wrath that they have stored up has been satisfied in the death of Christ? Now, how do we do that? If you're a Christian, you already know. But maybe you've fallen away. What you need to do is come back. You have an advocate in heaven through Christ and you can uh, refocus your energy, you can refocus your efforts, start walking after the footprints of Christ again, and start walking on that narrow path to, to you know, get to that place, to get to the kingdom, to get to, to heaven. But if you are not a Christian, to come in harmony, to be reunited with Christ in his life, you have to be united with him in death. And so that means being faithful to everything that he says. Re of all the things he says are going to keep you out of that kingdom. All the things that the wrath of God is coming on. Make a confession based on that belief and be baptized into that death so that you can rise to walk in a resurrected life, continuously putting off those things that will keep us from heaven. And so are you subject to the invitation of Christ by any means? Please come forward and make your need known as we stand and as we sing.